Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for those joining us online. Before we get started, I've got a couple announcements I want to go over with you. Uh, first of all, on a sad note, our friend and Christian brother, Bill Stoppenbrink, passed away on Monday of this week. And uh, we will be holding a funeral service this coming Wednesday at 9 a.m. here in the sanctuary at High Point. I want to encourage you to come out and support Rosie and Bill's entire family. I also want to ask you to keep the family in your prayers because you know that's a very difficult time for anybody when you lose a loved one. So be sure you come out and let's, uh, let's uh, honor this man who we all knew and loved so well. Secondly, uh, this coming Saturday, we are going to be giving to families in our community Thanksgiving turkeys. We're going to be handing them out in our parking lot over here between the hours of 9 and noon. So if uh, you or someone you know could use some help in terms of having a turkey for this Thanksgiving, please either call the church office or you can follow the link in the, uh, the information booth. There's a little information packet, announcement packet, and inside there is a link. You can actually go online and sign up as well. Um, and I would like to ask you, uh, if you are on Facebook, we do have a graphic on our church Facebook page with details about the turkey giveaway. And if you wouldn't mind taking that and sharing that with your friends, uh, we'd get the news out there uh, quicker. It's always funny when we do the bikes and turkeys and different things like that. And by the way, we aren't doing bikes this year because of COVID. There are just a lot of things to consider on that. So we won't be doing the bikes this year for the first time in eight years, but we are doing the turkeys. And the funny thing is you just never know how many people are gonna show up. And so as, as a nervous pastor, I, I get kind of uptight two weeks before because we don't have much, many names and all of a sudden it hits at the last minute and we're always okay. But I like to encourage you to, to, to get involved and get active. And if you know people who need to be blessed, uh, let us know so that we can bless them with the turkey. That's what it's all about. And finally, uh, this week as a nation, we observe Veterans Day. But because it fell in the middle of the week, I think it was overlooked. I don't think there was a lot of attention given to our veterans. And uh, so what I'd like to do, I'd like to have, if you're a veteran here, would you stand to your feet so we can acknowledge you today as a congregation of this church? Yeah. Thank you so very much for your faithfulness, your, your giving and your serving of your nation. We appreciate you, and we want you to know that as a church family. We do appreciate you. I said finally, but there's actually one other thing, and, and I know I sent out a letter on this, but in case you didn't get it, and it seems cool in here to you, our heaters are broken for the sanctuary, and we are working on getting them fixed, and there's some fabrication that's having to be done that is delaying this. So I just want to tell you over the next probably three weeks, uh, dress warm, uh, wear a jacket, bring a sweater, I don't want you to walk out of here because you're too cold, but unfortunately, that's the, the situation we're in. We were able to get the heaters that run in the office area functioning. We had to replace those two. We're replacing the ones for the sanctuary. And uh, the fabrication part, the customization of it is what's taking time. So just wanted to give you a heads up on that. If you're wondering why it's cool in here, now you know. So hang in there with us. We'd appreciate it. Well, this morning... I'm going to continue in our series that we have titled Short Truths, where we're looking at four of the shortest books in the entire Bible, and they are Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Jude. And these are not just the shortest books in the Bible, but they are the least read books in the entire New Testament. And the purpose for us doing this series is because it's a book that a lot of people, there are books that a lot of people don't read, and you're going to find within them real truth and real instruction 
uh, in each one of those books that has direct application for our time and day, and thus the reason I'm doing this series. Today we are going to look at 3 John, and so in preparation, go ahead and turn there. And while you're doing that, let me say to you that some people have re referenced this book or referred to this book as the tale of three men. And really, that's an appropriate title because if you know these three men, then you kind of know what 2 John is all about. First, you have verse 1 that speaks of a man named Gaius, and Gaius is the man whom the Apostle John wrote this letter. In verse 9, we are introduced to a man named Diotrephes, who is an opponent of the Apostle John. And then in verse 12, it speaks of a man named Demetrius, who is a good and faithful man. So last Sunday, while we looked at 2 John and dealt with the question, what do you do when a false teacher comes knocking at your door? Today, we deal with the opposite question. What should you do when a godly teacher comes to your door? If last week was about the bad guys, this week is about the good guys. Last week was about truth in action, and this week is about love in action. Within this short epistle of 14 verses, you will find a, a fascinating snapshot of three personalities who are all a part of one first century church. We begin with Gaius, a truly generous man, and verses 1 through 4 introduces him to us. And you can follow along with me. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen. John's letter starts, The elder, to my friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you're continuing to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Gaius was evidently a, a Christian leader in the local church who was both well-known and well-loved by John the Apostle. Many believe that he was led to Christ by John himself because he counts him among, as among his spiritual children. John considers him to be a man of trustworthy character and whose soul is prospering in the Lord. In short, he is a fine Christian man. And if you look a bit closer, you'll discover that he was a balanced man as well. Twice in verse 4, he mentions that Gaius is walking in the truth. This means that he built his life upon the Word of God and, and he maintained his Christian faith in the midst of temptation and, and persecution. And in verse 6, John adds that Gaius is well known for his love. And in this context, what he means is that he shows hospitality to the traveling Christian teachers and welcomed them into his home. Here is a man who walks in the truth and who demonstrates his love. And as we discussed last week, this is true spiritual balance. We can also see that Gaius is a faithful man. In verse 3 and again in verse 5, John mentions his faithfulness. This, for, this uh, first refers to what Gaius believes and secondly to the life that he lives. That is, he is faithful in both belief and behavior. He is a man you can trust. He knows what he believes, and, you can, and, and he has the courage to stand behind what he believes. There is no double talk or veiled messages that come out of the mouth of Gaius. If he says it, you can count on it. We also see 
that he is a big-hearted man, and this refers to the way he treats visiting ministers of the gospel. If we go on to verses 5 through 8, it tells the story. Dear friend, John continues, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought to therefore show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. In the earliest days of the Christian movement, churches were established by the apostles on their various journeys. And later, after they established these churches, they would send out ministers and teachers and evangelists to serve in these new churches. Now, as I've explained over the last couple weeks, there was no reliable motels or hotels, so those traveling ministers had to stay in the homes of the people of the, of the church. So it was the responsibility of the church leaders to welcome those traveling teachers and then send them on their way to their next appointment. Well, Gaius apparently excelled in this gift of hospitality, even though these men were strangers to him. And that leads me to point out how, how many of us have actually underestimated the New Testament camp command to practice hospitality. The Greek word here literally means love for strangers. That's what it means. Today, I think that we think hospitality is buying some nachos and salsa and inviting our buddies over to watch Monday Night Football. That's not what biblical hospitality is all about. Uh, true hospitality involves opening your heart as well as opening your home to those in need. It means sharing your time, sharing your resources with people who you may not even know very well. And you'll see in verse 8, there's this wonderful thought that by supporting God's workers that we actually work together and we become fellow workers in the truth. That means that those of us here at High Point, whenever we invest in our missionaries, some that are in Nigeria, some in India, some in France, some in Japan, and many other places, when we pray for them, when we, we write to them, when we give them financial support for the work that they are doing for the kingdom of God, in a true sense, we have become partners with them in their work, even though they are thousands of miles away on the other side of the world. Well, Gaius was that kind of a man. He welcomed God's workers into his home. He supported them, and then he would send them on their way so that they could preach at the other places that they were assigned to preach at. And in doing so, he became a, as John says, a fellow worker with them and shared in their victories in the Lord. Well, that brings us to the second man, and his name is Diotrephes, and we can sum him up by saying that he is as bad as Gaius is good. And the apostle minces no words in his condemnation of this man in verses 9 through 11. This is what he writes. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. Another translation says he wants nothing to do with us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. 
I want you to consider John's five-fold indictment of this di divisive man named Diotrephes. He is number one, self-willed. John says he loves to be first. Here is a man who pushes his way to the front of every line. He doesn't simply want to be first, he needs to be first, and he'll do anything to get into the driver's seat. Number two, he is rebellious to spiritual authority. As John writes, he will not welcome us. I want you to remember who John is. John is the apostle who the Bible says Jesus loved. In other words, he was close with Jesus. He walked the earth with our Lord. He saw the miracles. He was a part of it all throughout his earthly mission. And yet this man named Diotrephes arrogantly wants absolutely nothing to do with him. And to me, I find that very, very interesting. Number three, he is a slanderer. It says in verse 10, spreading malicious nonsense. That means to gossip nonsensical slander and empty lies. Number four, he is ungracious. He refuses to welcome other believers. This means he, he refused to welcome the traveling teachers, the very ones that Gaius gladly put into his home. So Diotrephes not only rejects the apostle John, but he rejects those who represent him as well. And number five, he is an abuser of power. As a leader, he doesn't want to welcome new believers. As I said, verse 10 says he stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. And here's the worst of it. Evidently, this man has taken control of the leadership of the church, and he has cast out anyone who is in disagreement with him. This is terrible for a simple reason, that it is one thing to do evil yourself, but it is something altogether different, and I might add, much worse, to oppose those who wish to do good. So who is this man? Someone has called him aptly the first church boss. He is first in a long line of men and women who rise to power in a local church only to use that power for ungodly ends. He is clearly influential, probably an elder or a deacon or a trustee. Maybe he's a chairman of some kind of a committee at that church. He is a self-appointed big shot. He is ambitious, he's powerful, he's well-connected. When he speaks, other people listen because he has a strong voice within the church. And as I study this text, a strange paradox comes to mind. Because in 2 John, the, the apostle John spares no words in condemning the, the wrong theology of false teachers, as you will recall. But in this letter, he makes no mention of the theology of Diotrephes. And you may wonder why that is. I believe it is because there was nothing wrong with his theology. Diotrephes was the kind of guy that understood the statement of faith that his church presented, and he could recite the key verses as well or better than anyone else. Theology wasn't his problem. Diotrephes' problem was that he was a leader in a church, and he doesn't even know God. That's what verse 11 means when it says, do not imitate what is evil. Diotrephes was doing evil, and John calls on Gaius not to follow his example. And why is this important? Because as John wrote, anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. That means he's unsaved. 
His heart has not yet been transformed by the power of God. Now, the paradox here is clearly seen. Diotrephes is an unsaved church member who has risen to power, a position of power within the church. He's probably orthodox in his, in his theology, but he is thoroughly ungodly in his approach and in his methods. He's just as evil as the false teachers that John warned us about in 2 John, but truthfully, he's much harder to spot because he says all the right words. And verse 9 again uncovers the basic problem when John says he loves to be first. I find this statement challenging because as a pastor, I love leading the people of God. But there is a fine line. And sometimes that line is, is actually invisible between proper enjoyment and proper ambition. Because unbridled ambition can be cloaked with pious phrases, while underneath it all is, is a heart that is filled with the wrong kinds of desires and ambitions. You know, sometimes people are surprised to discover that there are politics involved in the local church. Well, it is true. In every church, there are leaders and there are followers. There are those in, on the inside, there are those on the outside. There are newcomers, there are old timers, there are rising stars, and there are a lot who just choose to sit on the fringe and look inward. For the most part, none of that is bad in and of themselves, but occasionally, someone comes along with ulterior motives. They find those, they quickly find those who are in leadership, and they cling to them, and over time, they gain respect, and eventually, they're given some authority. They may eventually become a leader in the church themselves. But it's at that point when their bad motives become evident. But by then, it's, it, it's too late to stop them. So how do you spot a modern-day diatrophies? Well, here's 10 signs I want to share with you. Number one, they talk too much. They dominate every conversation. Number two, they have a critical spirit towards those who disagree with them. Number three, they're always taking sides, and they're counting noses to see who has the power. That's important to them. Number four, they think they can do things better than those who are currently in leadership. They have a rebellious attitude towards the leaders who are over them. They tend to uh, focus exclusively on their group of friends. They argue endlessly over minor details of church life. They take it personally whenever their advice is not followed. They cling to their positions of authority at all costs, and they see new and gifted people as potential threats to their power. So how does such a person emerge in a congregation? Well, I think it really depends on the church and who's in leadership at that particular church. Sometimes it can happen through the giving of money when leadership of a particular church places too high of a value on a person who gives consistently and who gives generously. That's how it can happen. And soon that person believes that they have the right to call the shots on when and how the money that they give is actually spent. It can also happen when somebody serves several years faithful service as a volunteer in a church. 
And then people soon start to recognize that person as a go-to guy or gal. But all the while that they're serving, they're planting seeds of discord. It happens when a person runs around offering what they claim is a prophetic word to people individually throughout the congregation. But there is nothing prophetic about it. These are words that are designed to make them appear to be perceived as a spiritual leader or juggernaut juggernaut within the, the church. It can happen through somebody leading a small group because they become the answer man, the answer person. And what they do is, is they undermine the leadership of the church and say, you know, you only need to come to me with all of your questions. I'm, I'm the guy, I'm the gal that, that will set you straight. But you know, on a deeper level, people like Diotrephes rise because godly people, both those in leadership and those in lay leadership, refuse to confront the evil attitude when they first see it surface. Please understand something. No church will prosper when there is a diatrophic spirit that prevails within that body. So how do you deal with such a person? Well, in verse 10, John promises to take care of the problem himself when he says, if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing. This probably means that John is going to follow the pattern found in Matthew 18, which begins with a private rebuke. And if that doesn't work, that's followed by a public rebuke. And when, if that's not followed, then that is followed by eventual excommunication from the body, the, the church. The church has to follow biblical guidance to deal with this kind of a divisive individual. So now we move on to the third man, and his name is Demetrius. We know very little about him, but everything that we know is positive. Look at verse 12. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. Here is a man with a good reputation. In biblical terms, he is a man beyond reproach meaning that his character is so strong that no accusation made against him can stand. He was grounded in the truth to the point that the truth itself could speak on his behalf. That's saying a lot. It appears that this is a man who practiced what he preached. Demetrius was the kind of man who was consistent in every area of life. He's the kind of person that any church would be blessed to have. And John is acknowledging him for his faithfulness, for his loyalty in this letter. And then the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, ends this letter with these words, beginning in verse 13. I have much to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. So 3 John identifies three men in this letter. Gaius, the generous, Diotrephes, the troublemaker, and Demetrius, the faithful man of God. Three men, all known by John and apparently found together for at least a period of time in this first century church. So what do we do with this information that John has shared in this epistle? Well, this morning, I would like to suggest five applications for us today from this little letter written by John. 
And the first one is this. There is no such thing as a perfect church because there are no perfect people. And I think that instinctively, every one of us knows this, but I think it's important for us to be reminded of this from time to time. I'm reminded of this whenever I receive an email or a Google review from someone who is critical of our church. And when I read it, I realize that we are far from perfect. I personally am, and we as a church fall short, at least of some people's expectations. And of all things, believe it or not, this makes me think of marriage, because I once heard a pastor explain the truth that all married couples know, but that newlyweds don't discover until much later. In speaking of marriage, this pastor said, you really have no idea what you're getting into. He explained it this way. When you get married, you are really marrying three people. The person you think you're marrying, the person you're actually marrying, and the person that they are going to become in the future. And guess what? The person who marries you, your spouse, they're marrying three people as well. No wonder marriage is so tough. There's six people involved in a marriage. <laughs> and for any marriage to succeed, you need three very important elements. You need patience, you need forgiveness, and you need a long-term perspective. And believe it or not, the same thing holds true when joining a church. You're actually joining three churches. You are joining the church you think you're joining, the church you're actually joining, and the church that it will someday become. That's the reason sometimes people join a church with great and high excitement, only to later bail out in disillusionment. You need to have that same kind of patience, that same kind of forgiveness, that same kind of long-term perspective to stay in a church year after year. High Point Assembly is not a perfect church. We are far from it. In fact, there is no perfect church. And let me just tell you something this morning, and this is good advice. Write this down. Don't forget it. If you do find a perfect church, please don't join it because you're not perfect. And you're going to ruin that church. <laughs> Second observation from 3 John. We become like the people that we follow. That's why John urges Gaius not to follow evil, but to do what is good. In the end, our lives mold themselves after the people who we follow after. So who are you following? What kind of friends are you spending time with? If you hang out with Gaius, you will be generous like Gaius. If you hang out with Diotrephes, you will be a grumpy, complaining troublemaker. And if you hang out with Demetrius as a friend, you'll soon find yourself becoming a more faithful person. So let's flip this principle over just for a moment. If we all became like you, what kind of church would we have? You need to ask yourself. That's something that we all need to ponder from time to time. If this church was full of a bunch of me's, what would this church be? My third observation from 3 John, the spirit of Diotrephes is alive and well today. Over the years, I have witnessed or I have heard of a number of church problems. It's been my observation that most church splits happen over a number of very serious reasons. 
things like a moral failure on behalf or on the part of the pastor, embezzlement of church funds, a lack of integrity in leadership, doctrinal issues or, or false teaching, among many other things. And those are very serious matters that require attention and correction. And it's when those in leadership fail to make the required connect corrections that a split of a church generally occurs. But over the years, I've also been made aware of times when churches split over much lesser things, things that never should have resulted in a church split. They are things based upon personal preferences and not doctrinal or moral issues, like the refusal to change anything. Building projects are a big one. Churches split all the time when they borrow money for a building project and it never gets finished because people end up leaving. Power and control is another one. The style of worship music is another one. A new pastor coming in with new ideas. Unfriendly staff. No, we're not unfriendly, are we, Chris? Disagreements on how money is spent. And the list can go on and on. It is those with a diatrophies spirit who often push or who are often the driving force behind these kind of church splits. They recruit other people and they indoctrinate them into their way of thinking and they grow in numbers and eventually they side with one another and they force a church split. And you can clearly see why they are behind such actions. Because keep in mind the church split provides the one with the diatrophies spirit greater opportunity to take more control over the church. It puts them in a position to, to mold the church into what they want it to become, taking the lead and calling all the shots, which is what they wanted from the time they walked into the building. So it's very important when you or I experience or see someone with that kind of a spirit attached to them, that we call them out on it sooner rather than later. You offer them no support. You give them no leverage to be able to do the destructive things that in their heart of hearts they desire to do. And you know, as we discuss this, it's very important for all of us to regularly do a personal internal assessment into the way that we operate on an individual basis with regard to church life. There are times that every one of us, including your pastor, needs to stop and ask the Lord, do I love to be first too much? Do, or is there a divisive spirit in me? Do I demand that things go my way too often? Are my expectations of this church healthy? Are they even realistic? Am I creating more problems than I'm helping to solve? I think it is important that everyone ask those questions to our own peril. If we ignore them, it will be to our own peril. It is just that simple. So whenever we see the diatrophy spirit in someone else, or even if we see it rear its ugly head within us, we must take action. My fourth observation of 3 John, there is enormous wisdom in shared leadership. It's harder 
for a diatrophies to rise to influence and power when there is a system of checks and balances that are in order. That's one reason why I am assisted here by several staff pastors who serve with me, and that's why we also have a church board of directors. There is truly safety to be found in numbers. Diotrephes thought he was the head of the church, and that's always a huge mistake. And in case you are wondering, let me state for the record as plain and clearly as I can, I am not the head of this church. Jesus Christ is. That is a title that he will not share with any man or any woman. As your pastor, I serve as the shepherd of this congregation. Actually, I tend to call myself the under-shepherd of this congregation because the Lord is the shepherd and he is my shepherd. That's exactly how it should be. I am simply one part of this congregation. You know, sometimes you will hear people talk about these megachurches. They'll talk about Tommy Barnett's church or they'll talk about Bill Johnson's Bethel Church, or Stephen Furtick's Elevation Church, or any of those megachurches that are out there. And I cannot speak for Bill Johnson or Stephen Furtick because I don't know either of them. But having worked for Pastor Tommy Barnett, I can tell you he wants nothing to do with that kind of talk. These megachurches that these men have helped to build are not their churches. They are not. There's only one true head of every Christian church, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in case I am tempted to forget that regarding my position here at High Point, all I have to do is look at a document that I have on file. It spells out the history of this church and the seven other men who preceded me as pastor. Pastor J.A. Banton, Pastor Everett Morgan, Pastor James Benny, Pastor David Colbert, Pastor Dan Billings, Pastor Ron Fortenberry, and Pastor John Christensen. High Point's history reminds me of a vital truth. I am one of many pastors who has helped to lead this congregation over the past 96 years. And as best I can decipher, with the information that was given to me, I am the eighth pastor. And should Jesus tarry, there will be a ninth pastor here someday. I am here on temporary assignment from the Lord, the same as all of the other men who came here before me. This church was here long before I came, and God willing, it will be here long after I leave, doing even greater things for the kingdom of God. The fifth observation that I walk away from 3 John, and this is really my main point today. The most important thing, in case you're wondering, is to know Jesus Christ personally. Look at how John describes the work of the traveling ministers in verse 7. He said they went out for the sake of the name. What a beautiful phrase that is. It reminds me that the name of Jesus is the name above all other names. It also reminds me that everything that we do here at High Point Assembly is for the sake of the name of Jesus. That's why, barring current COVID restrictions, we have Children's Church for the sake of the name. And by the way, we have a modified version of Children's Church for you parents with children. 
We just require one of you to be with your kids, and we're setting you in separate tables in the gymnasium. We haven't not done children's church. We're just having to do it in a different way. So if you want to bring your kids to children's church, have one of your spouses come in the service, have the other spouse that's at the 11 o'clock service, go back to the gymnasium. We are offering children's church. We do it for the sake of the name. That's why we have a youth ministry, for the sake of the name. And that's why we have a young adult ministry, for the sake of the name. That's why we have a women's ministry. That's why we have small groups, for the sake of the name. That's why last year this church gave over $78,000 to missionary works all over the world for the sake of the name. That's why we are offering two worship services now. That's why we preach and pray and sing and study and worship and give and serve. We do it all for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what this small book of 3 John teaches me is simple. If you attend here with any other motivation other than seeking Jesus, the one whose name we worship, my friend, you are coming to this place for the wrong reason. Your attendance here should first be about entering in to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That means you turn your life over to him and you allow him lordship over your very existence because it is through that relationship that all of your choices and your decisions and your actions and the way you treat people outside of these four walls is filtered. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter who you don't know. It doesn't matter if you're in leadership or serving in this place or not. You may know leaders and kings and presidents. You may know potentates for all I know. You, you may serve regularly here at this church and even direct the actions of other people. But my friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ on a personal and intimate level, you are just going through the motions and you are missing out on the whole reason for your very existence. And you will eventually end up like old Diotrephes. You will be critical, you will be negative, and you will be demanding, and most importantly and worst of all, you will be a phony when your goal should be to want to become like Gaius, the generous, like Demetrius, the faithful man of God, or more importantly, like Christ Jesus himself. This is what we refer to as Christ-likeness. We desire to become more like him. Anthony, will you come up here and help me to close this down? So, what this demands for me to ask you this morning is do you know him? I mean, do you really know him? I've been thinking a lot lately about the brevity of life. And again, it hit me on Monday morning when our very own Bill Stoppenbrink went home to be with the Lord. And some of you who are older than me might laugh at this statement that I'm going to make, and some of you who are younger than me don't understand the statement, but here it is. At my age right now, death is something that comes into my mind much more frequently than it ever did 20 years ago. It's funny how your perspective changes as you get older. And the reason for that is because almost daily, I read about some celebrity or some athlete, some politician, some church leader, even a high school classmate who has died that I remembered well. Started a couple weeks ago with Eddie Van Halen. And I think to myself, I regularly rocked to that guy's music growing up. 
I loved Eddie Van Halen. Now he's gone. Or Lou Brock. I watched Lou Brock play baseball on television when I was a kid. He was an idol. I looked up to him. Sean Connery. Can't tell you how many Sean Connery films I've watched. Or Don Johnson, my high school classmate. Not the Don Johnson, the famous one. I remember the fist fight I got in with Don in the, in the cafeteria at Central High School. We got in a fist fight. He's my age. He was a friend. He's my age and he's dead now. And from what I can gather, it was due to alcoholism, which is sad. And all of this reminds me of the words in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 14. It says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears, a mist, M-I-S-T, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's what you and I are. We're just a mist. We're a little breeze. We're a puff of air. And then we're gone. So where did all those people that I just shared with you go? Where is their soul this morning? I don't know. But I can only pray that in their final moments, they cried out to Jesus for forgiveness and for mercy. And he is faithful to answer those kinds of cries. Every service at this church, in case you haven't noticed, I give people an opportunity to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I often wonder what you as the congregation think about that. Because I've gotten looks sometimes from people and, and, I, and, and, I, and I need clarification. Is, I, I, I see people going, why, why does he do that every service? I do it because it is the single most important thing that we do at this church. Directing people into a life-changing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're not doing that, we might as well bar the doors. We might as well quit. We're about leading people to Christ. And furthermore, I will, not you, I will answer one day to my Heavenly Father for every time I preach the gospel and I didn't give people an opportunity to act upon what they heard. What sense does it make to talk about the Lord and to not give people an opportunity to have their life changed by them? The best thing that I or anybody else can do is to point people into the direction of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you know him? Do you trust him down to the core of your very being? Is he the Lord and Savior of your life? Or is he just a casual token God that you pull out every once in a while when you want to play the Christianity card? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. Author Erwin Lutzer was once on the radio. He was discussing a book that he wrote titled, One Minute After You Die. And a woman called into the live radio program with a gripping question. First, she identified that if her friends heard her, they would be surprised to hear her on the radio because she was perceived as a really strong and solid Christian woman. But in her heart, she had no assurance. And her question was very, very simple, and this is what it was. How can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? A woman who served the Lord the majority of her life, and she's asking a question like that. And Erwin Lutzer gave a wonderful response. He said, I want you to think about the cross of Jesus Christ 
and what it represents. Do you believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough for your salvation? Or do you think you need to add something to that, to what Jesus did? And that is really the central question for every one of us to consider this morning. When Jesus died on that cross, was his death enough so that there was nothing else that you or I need to do to secure salvation? If the answer is yes, then you can be saved and you can be sure of your salvation. But if you answer that question, no, then you will never be sure because you and I can never do enough. We can't save ourselves. Thank God that the answer is an eternal yes. The old song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. So who will say, I believe that the cross is enough for me? Who will say that I am willing to trust Christ absolutely and completely? Who will say, I want to go to heaven, and I know Jesus is the only one who will get me there? Who will say, I'm trusting my whole life into Jesus' almighty hands? And most importantly, who will say, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come into my heart, forgive me of my sin, and be the Lord of my life. If you want to be saved, you need to run to Christ, and you need to lay hold of, of, of him in faith. You need to fix your hope on him, because those who trust Jesus will never be disappointed. The Bible says, in order to be saved, in order to receive salvation, a person must simply believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he came to this earth in the form of a man and he walked a sinless life and he was arrested and beaten beyond recognition and hung on a cross. And the blood that he shed on that cross that dripped down from that, that wooden thing he was nailed to covers your sin. It atones for your sin. It erases your sin. And you must pray in belief and confession and say, Jesus, I believe that is you, and I believe you came and you died for me. And today I accept your forgiveness. Forgive me of my sin. Wash my slate clean. Make me white as snow. And as you pray that, that's the confession part. You don't have to pray that out loud. You can pray that in your spirit, in your mind to the Lord. In a moment, we're going to pray together. I'm going to pray for you, but while I'm praying, if you don't know Jesus, you're, you're at home watching online or you're in this place, pray a prayer of belief and confession. The Bible says when you do, Jesus will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You will become a new creation, and we hope that as a church, we can come alongside of you and we can help in discipling you into the things of God, the Word of God becoming a stronger man or woman of God. That's what we're here for. Would you all stand to your feet, please, as we close this service in prayer? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, as I always say, I thank you for the truth in your word. I thank you for my church family. 
I thank you that even during these difficult times, people are remaining faithful to you in their relationship with you. And Lord, as I look and I survey this congregation, both at the early service and now at this 11 o'clock service, I see that still only a little over half of us are coming, and that's okay. I know why others aren't coming. They're trying to protect themselves. They don't have a place for their children to go free of mom and dad. And, and Lord, there's so many reasons why people aren't coming, but I know that they're watching online. And I know they're continuing to serve you, albeit they are frustrated as all of us are. But God, I pray that uh, every one of us in this place would never become a Diotrephes, but we would become a Gaius. We would be faithful. We would be generous. We would open our hearts to those who are lost, that that would become our lifestyle, a daily lifestyle. We become like Demetrius and be faithful in, in our word and in our deed. That's our desire, Lord. So I pray that you would just touch every person here today, those watching online, that you would bring encouragement into their heart, that they would know that they know that they have received salvation and that when their time on this earth is done, whether it be by accident or by old age or whatever it may be, Father, that they will know that they're going to spend eternity in your presence. That's what faith in Christ is all about. And I pray that we would always hold on to that. And therefore, we would live lives that wouldn't just say, hey, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, but this is just too good to keep to myself and not share it with others. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a boldness to share your goodness with other people, that we would not be afraid to say, hey, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is what he's done in my life. This is what he can do for you. And that we would continually be talking about your goodness to other people. Lord, for those who do not know you today, I pray that they have the courage to pray the simple words, Jesus, forgive me, become the Lord of my life. I turn my life over to you today. Be the Lord and Savior of my very existence and I will walk with you and I will live for you and I will serve you all the days of my life. I thank you, Lord, for those who are praying that prayer right now. And I thank you for the changed life that they're going to see in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, as we go our separate ways today, pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us. The places we go, the conversations that we have, the things that we do, that they would all bring you glory, would not embarrass you, but would bring you glory for how good you have been to us. I ask that you would open doors of opportunities for us to share our faith with others. And I pray, Lord, that you'll keep us safe until we meet together again. Keep us safe from COVID, from any other sicknesses or diseases or illnesses. Keep us safe as we drive our cars and so no accidents will befall us so that we can join together again as a family and worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you for your presence here today, Lord. It's been very profound. It's been very sweet. Not only do you indwell us, but I felt your presence in and around us today. And I thank you for that. And I pray that as we leave here today, we will be reminded that you are with us every moment of every day and that we are secure in you. And we thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for your promises that are true and that we will never be disappointed. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless you.